You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Peter Norvig, who is currently at Stanford University at the Institute for uh, Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. He's also a consultant at Google, and I think you, you had a pretty major role there at Google for quite a while, heading up their algorithms group or their AI group. You've also worked at NASA and taught at Berkeley. Also, you got, you're author of, of a couple books. I mean, probably your biggest seller, I mean, I don't know whether it's made it to the top of the New York Times, but you know, you're the co-author of Artificial Intelligence, A Modern Approach, which is what, in its fifth or sixth edition at this point? I don't know. Just the fourth. Uh, so we took a long time between editions. Although I got to say the latest edition, which is only two years old, is probably the most out of date has ever been. <laughs> Things move pretty quickly. And also you're the co-author of this new book called Data Science in Context, Foundations, Challenges, and Opportunities. Welcome, Peter. Great to be here. Thanks, Greg. Now, look, you've got these two books. One is called Data Science in Context. The other is Artificial Intelligence. And you presumably could have another book called Machine Learning, right? And I always get these questions, (laughs) right? I started teaching a course on data science about a decade ago here at Berkeley. And very quickly, people were like, wait, is this a data science class? Is it a machine learning class? Artificial intelligence class? Like, you know, what exactly is this? And, you know, a lot of people are confused about this. And so that's why I was kind of surprised when I still saw this book called Data Science, because it's for some people, that's kind of an outdated term. So, you know, do you think of yourself as a data scientist? How how do you think about yourself? I guess I think of myself as an AI person, uh, but data science is one of the things I do, right? And so it's hard to get all these definitions right. I I think you're right about that. It is confusing to the public. I think you know, new fields come along because people aren't completely happy with the way the old field is going. And it's easier to gain momentum to to start a new thing than it is to to move a big, heavy ship. Uh, you know, so it could be we didn't really need AI. We had uh, statistics and operations research. If they had been more accommodating, we wouldn't have had AI uh, uh, or machine learning. But the way I think of it now is... AI is trying to write programs that do intelligent things. Machine learning is doing that by showing it examples. And the alternative to that is uh, an older technology we call expert systems, which means you use the blood, sweat, and tears of graduate students to write down pieces of knowledge by hand rather than trying to learn them. And we still have some of that in AI, but, but mostly it's uh, been completely consumed by the machine learning approach. Now, data science also uses machine learning, but I think of of data science as a combination of the statistics or machine learning, the ability to do some programming, but not necessarily be a professional level programmer, and then expertise in the particular type of data you have, whether that's uh, biology or economics or whatever the data is. And so data science is kind of the combination or the intersection of uh, those three aspects. Now, I'm trained as an historian, and so you know, historians love to split themselves into two groups: the folks who emphasize continuity and the folks who emphasize uh, discontinuity. And you know, with all mm-hmm. these large language models, ChatGPT and so forth that have come out, you hear people saying, "Oh man, I got to start incorporating artificial intelligence into my business." <laughs> you know, like here we've got this new thing we've yeah. got to incorporate. But we've heard that before, right? So every time there's a new generation of technology, people are saying, well, now, now things are really going to change. I mean, do you see the developments of the last, say, 30 years as one of continuity or one where you have these clear breaks? I mean, when I, when I teach my class, I try to just start with the old school algorithms, right? Like nearest neighbor and you know, decision trees. And then when we introduce deep learning, just kind of say, well, okay, now we're just, you know, moving from structured data, but we're still, you know, doing kind of pattern recognition and so forth. I mean, do you try to emphasize the continuity or do you really see each of these new developments as being somewhat disruptive? 
uh, I guess both, right? <laughs> so, uh, so I certainly uh, agree with your point of view that we update what we're doing, but in some sense, it's still doing the the same thing. But I do think we are at a at a special point right now. You know, just in the last year, where these techniques are becoming much more successful, much faster, and and having a bigger impact. And I think there's a combination of factors that that led to that. Uh, we had more data become available, text and images. It was really crucial that our computers uh, got uh, 100,000 times faster and that our budgets got better so that we could uh, chain together larger amounts of computers and, and do things that, you know, maybe the, the algorithms were there before. You know, maybe if we had the computing power, we could be where we are today in this exciting time a decade ago, because it's not that the algorithms were that different. Sure, there were, there were some nice algorithmic breakthroughs, but mostly it's been the access to data and the computing power that, that's, that's kind of changed everything at this moment right now. And so, so I feel kind of both, right? So I feel like, yeah, you know, I've been playing with language models since 2017 uh, with, with large language models, and they keep getting better. And to some extent, I've been playing with language models for 20 years, if you, if you go back and look at uh, n-gram language models. And, you know, if you just want to uh, generate random text that uh, looks like Shakespeare, those n-gram models were, were great uh, back in the 80s. But if you want to answer all these questions and do all these creative things that the large language models can do now, uh, it seems like we just passed a threshold. And I think that often happens where... You have a technology, and, and it's not that there's one breakthrough, but it passes the threshold from being annoying to use to being useful to use. And I think, you know, we saw that for uh, speech recognition. And, and yes, there were some breakthroughs, and yes, uh, moving from the old technology to the deep learning technology made a difference for speech recognition. But mostly it was every year it improves, and it goes from, well, it's annoying because you have to correct more mistakes and it's not worth it to everybody's talking to it on their phones. Are the large language models, do they represent sort of a, a fundamental shift in the methodology of extracting insight from data? I mean, when you moved from expert systems to machine learning, I mean, that clearly was a change in philosophy, right? Which was, you know, we're not right. going to architect this thing with a series of rules that we design right, that are drawn from, you know, physics or whatever. We're going to just kind of let the machines figure it out. And and so it seems like after that shift, everything, every new development was just a matter of, oh, more data, you know, more processing power. Is there some kind of methodological shift that has enabled these new kinds of, of insights and new kinds of predictions, new kinds of models? I guess it's more a, sh a shift in emphasis. Right. So we've always had this sort of dilemma of do you want to solve a problem with uh, one end to end solution, you know, mostly a machine learning solution? Say, so put in all the data, put the inputs in, you get the output out, now you're done. It takes into account all the available data. So that's a good thing to do. So the end to end approach is one. And the alternative is you say, well, I know something more than just the data I have. I have some some knowledge. So I'm going to break the system down into components and I'm going to make those, wire those components up so they flow into each other. And that additional knowledge I have should be helpful to do a better job. And often that is exactly what happens. But other times by wiring them up, the interface between them is smaller and some background knowledge doesn't get propagated the way it can in an end-to-end -end system. So we've always had that trade-off. I think what's happening now is that the pendulum is kind of shifting so that more problems are better solved with this uh, one-shot end-to-end approach. We still need some kind of analysis, uh, and you see that in, in a lot of the systems that are being built. So like it used to be when we were building chess playing programs or Go playing programs, you had a lot of expert players kibitzing on the system. And then AlphaGo came along and said, no, we don't need any of that. We'll just do self-play. We'll learn entirely from self-play. So to one extent, that's an end-to-end -end system. On the other hand, they didn't just hook up a random uh, neural net. 
Instead, they said, we're going to do Monte Carlo tree search. That's uh, an algorithm that's been tested over the years, and that's going to be kind of at the core. But then everything else is going to be, uh, we just use the neural net to analyze or do pattern matching uh, on each individual global uh, state of the board. Now, you've toggled back and forth between academia and industry, and we've got a lot of questions related to that. But at the highest level, when I teach my business students or students in other fields, I kind of like talk about the shift in the balance of power between the kind of generalists and specialists, right? The ones that have deep domain expertise and then the ones who are cognizant in these all-purpose methodologies, right? So, you know, the Billy Bean story where you bring in a bunch of young people Mm -hmm. who understood statistical modeling but didn't know a whole lot about baseball, you know, displacing the people who, you know, knew a lot about baseball but not a lot about statistics. And then, you know, one set of errors was gradually replaced by a, a different set of errors. And then you kind of had to tack back towards a mm-hmm. greater emphasis on domain expertise. It, you know, it seems like we're seeing that right now with, with chat GPT, right? There was this, uh, just a few days ago, there was this lawyer who submitted a brief. Yeah, yeah I saw that one. Right. And so, you know, we'll probably see a bunch of examples like that. And then the domain experts will have to kind of reassert themselves in some way. How do you know as a decision maker how much domain expertise you need to bring into the yeah. problem? So I think the lawyer case is not so much uh, an issue of domain expertise. It's an issue of not having the proper uh, warning labels on the package. <laughs> and it's it's a tough question, right? To me, uh, these language models are, are built on a, an absolutely incredible technology. But the technology is not the deep learning that... Uh, Benjio Lacoon and Hinton came up with uh, a decade ago. It's uh, the technology of, of writing that the Babylonians came up with 5,000 years ago. And I think, you know, we, we always appreciated that as a culture, but I think we didn't appreciate the degree to which how much of what we know about the world has been captured in writing. Uh, and then these large language models have access to that in, in an interesting way, mm-hmm. but obviously not in a perfect way. So we asked them to generate something that's in the same ballpark as what's out there. And, you know, and when we asked Midjourney, uh, you know, show me uh, an interesting fashion getup uh, that I could wear to such and such an event, and it creates something that's brand new, we say, that's awesome. That was really creative. We love that. You know, it was close to what's been done before, but it's new in an interesting way. And we want it to do that then, but we don't want it to do that when it's citing court cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if, yeah, you know, that would have been a great court case that you made up. Okay. That's exactly the kind of court case we're looking for. But if it didn't actually happen, uh, then you can't file it. Uh, we haven't quite figured out how to teach these models when to be creative and when to be doing retrieval rather than generation. But, you know, I think we'll do a better job of that, both in terms of education of saying, here's something you have to watch out for. And in terms of building and training the the system is to, to understand that difference. Yeah. I mean, it seems like the most potent applications here are in the area of example generation, right? So for instance, if you're a copy editor, copy designer, you want to create a spin up an ad and you want to have an image of a person at a table drinking a cup of coffee, right? You could spin up like a hundred of those. And then ultimately your expertise in selecting which one you should potentially use there, that kind of design or creative or domain expertise is going to kick in, but the amount of labor that you're going to save right and just spinning up those examples is huge yeah i think i think that's right and you know and like anything else you uh, you have to be careful and uh maybe it will generate an image and somebody will be wearing a tiny little necklace or something and that will be offensive to some mm-hmm. group of viewers uh so you you can't just accept whatever comes out you still have to do your due diligence to to make sure it's what you want but i think that's right that it's uh you know, I think it's two things. One, it's speed up in time of saying I can get 20 examples in the time. Maybe I could have only come up with one. And it's also a, a speed up in kind of expertise. Of, you know, previously you would have had to have an artist come in and generate those examples. Now, as a non-artist, uh, you can uh, do it yourself. Do you think we'll ever be able to design a- an algorithm that could automatically generate ethical rules? Right. <laughs> 
I mean, you were at Google during the famous gorilla fiasco, right? And I saw there was an article in New York Times just a couple of days ago where, you know, if you search for primates in Google images on your phone, you're still not going to find anything, right? But that was a human override, right? So a human said, hey, this is creating problems for us. We're going to override this. And in most of the chat GPT LLM models out there, you have these human overrides built in place. You know, there's one famously where Kevin Roos had this long conversation. So Microsoft was like, all right, we're going to limit this. With the gorilla example, there was no way that the algorithm could know that this is a particular place where you need to oversample or, you know, you need to be concerned about bias. I mean, if you had enough overrides in place, could the algorithm figure out, okay, now I get it. I understand why you're doing this override. I understand why you're doing that override. I mean, our ethical Mm -hmm. thinking is basically pattern recognition. You know, we say, oh, this is offensive because it resembles yep. all these other things that were offensive. Do, will we get to a point where we, we will need less and less kind of human oversight and supervision? So a couple of things. So one is uh, you're always making trade-offs of errors, you know, and kind of the core of machine learning is defining a loss function and then minimizing that loss. And I think for me, it's been an interesting journey. You know, you said I have four editions of the AI textbook. And in the first edition from 1995, we said, you know, uh, AI is part of computer science. Computer science is mostly about algorithms. We're going to show you a bunch of cool algorithms. And and there's some other stuff there as well. We got to the second and third edition. We said, okay, we're getting into this era of big data. We're still going to have all the algorithms in the book. Book's not going to get any shorter. But data is really important. And in fact, if you had a choice, maybe you're better off getting better data rather than getting better algorithms. And the fourth edition, we said, oh, wait a minute, you know, now uh, both data and algorithms are easy to download off of GitHub. But in the past, we just said, you know, your job as, a, as an AI worker is to optimize the objective function that somebody handed to you. And that was sort of outside of the scope mm-hmm. of what was AI. And now we're saying, you know, that was exactly wrong. That's really the key of what is AI in deciding what it is you're trying to optimize and what counts as success and failure. That's really the hard part. Once you got that, then applying the algorithms and the data is actually easier. So that's always going to be hard. But, you know, one of the fields we have now is, is inverse reinforcement learning of saying, can a system observe humans and figure out what it is that they want and then do more mm-hmm. of that? And that's a tricky field because, you know, some people do things that are self-destructive and, you know, you probably don't want a system that learns, uh, well, what this person really likes to do is uh, get drunk and fall down in the street. Uh, maybe you want to help them stop doing that, you know, and if a system observed me playing chess, it would say, well, what he really likes to do is uh, play four or five good moves and then screw up and lose the game. So. We need to define systems that can figure out what people really want to do rather than just what they actually do and can aggregate that over a, a whole culture rather than over individuals. So it's a challenge to get that right. But I think we can do that. And I think part of it is uh, we I think we do have the capability to do a better job of balancing different kinds of losses, right? So you're always going to have uh, false positives and false negatives. And you have to figure out what the difference is. And sometimes you just have to say no, right? So if you say classifying a person as a gorilla is a bad enough negative, then we're just not going to play that game. So similarly, there shouldn't be an app on your phone that says, I'll take a picture of a mushroom and tell you what it is. Because even if I can get 99.99% accuracy, I'm going to kill that other 0.01%. Uh, and it's not worth it. And so the best thing to do in that situation is say, no, I'm not going to make that identification. Well, the way I describe it is as a division of labor, right? So if you're doing a classifier, then, Mm -hmm. you know, the data scientist's job is to come up with the confusion matrix and area under the curve and all that stuff. And then the business side is supposed to come up with the kind of cost benefit matrix. And then you know, you have to yeah. either send the cost-benefit matrix down to the data scientist or have the data scientist send the confusion matrix up to the business people. But, I mean, is that division of labor 
sustainable. I mean, I spend a lot of time teaching data scientists the business side and spend a lot of time spending teaching the business side mm -hmm. and the data side. But at the end of the day, I mean, you can't be an expert in both, right? So do you think the yeah. best organizations are the ones that really design the best kind of interfaces between those two? I mean, Google's famous for being a company that is run by engineers, right? And, you know, I mean, my staff have these MBAs who are like, oh, you go, it's like, well, you know, yeah. Google's, you know, it's going to be hard for you to be senior leader at Google if you, if you don't have a little bit of engineering chops. Are the best companies the ones that have figured out how to combine those two or create good communication channels for those two? I think there's there's different roads to success for different companies. I, I think you're, you're definitely right about Google. And there's a, a story from the uh, from the very early days when uh, the initial uh, VC took Larry and Sergey aside and said, uh, look, uh, it's time to make a decision. Is this company going to be run by sales or by marketing? And they said, uh, we think we'll take engineering. Mm -hmm. And the VC said, oh, you silly college kids, uh, th that'll never work. But, you know, we'll give you another couple months and then we'll revisit it. Well, you know, it's, it's been 22 years and, or 25 years or something, and they haven't revisited it yet. And that can work for some companies and, and for other companies and other domains, it, it wouldn't work at all. You know, and there are benefits and, and costs to that, right? So, you know, Google ends up with, what is it, like uh, six different messaging apps. Mm -hmm. Whereas uh, Steve Jobs would never have allowed more than one messaging app mm -hmm. on the iPhone. Uh, and so you get maybe more possibly at least for innovation with this bottom-up engineering-driven approach, uh, but you also get more confusing uh, mm -hmm. interfaces from the, from the user level. Uh, and, and I think it's good that there are different types of companies that are, that are trying different approaches. And, you know, and as we talked about, uh, data science tries to put that all together, uh, in saying, we're going to have the statistics, we're going to have the programming, we're going to have the domain expertise. Uh, and, and in each situation you have to decide, you know, how much of that is in one person versus in different people. And if they're in different people, how do we make the lines of communication uh, good enough so that they can work together as a team? Mm -hmm. As I said earlier, you, you know, you toggled back and forth between academia and business. You know, if we went back to the 1950s, pretty much the majority of all the fundamental research that was moving the frontier of science would be either at a university or at, at a government agency, right? So it would either be at, say, a NASA or at a you know, Lawrence Berkeley lab or, or something like that. You know, if it was at a university, it would probably be government funded. And yes, of course, there was some practical research happening, you know, in, in Silicon Valley, but still a lot of that was driven by SRI, funded by Department of Defense and so forth. But now it seems like most of the advances are happening within you know, corporate labs or venture-backed startups. And, and it's the government that's, that's trying to figure out like, Hey, how do we incorporate this stuff? I mean, that seems like a, a shit. I mean, that, and that's true in the world of data primarily. Why do you think that is? I mean, why has the locus of innovation shifted towards the private sector? Yeah. And I, I think you, you missed an intermediate phase, right? So the, uh, the fifties are a little bit before my time, but if you, once you get into the seventies, then you had a lot happening at, at places like Bell Labs mm -hmm. and, and Xerox Park. And that was sort of monopoly driven corporate research. You know, I spent three years in government. I, I think it's hard for government to do, uh, big projects in an efficient way. I was meeting with uh, Candy Rice yesterday, and, and she was basically asked this question, and, and she said, every uh, defense weapon system has to have a part built in every congressional district. Uh, and, the, and that's just sort of the, the, the tax that we have on, on developing things. And, you know, it's hard to be efficient when you, when you have all these limitations on what you can do. So I think there's a role for government. Uh, both in in doing some specific developments on their own and in in funding others, uh, but that role is limited, and so the rest is taken up by universities and by industries. In things like these large language models, we come to a point right now where a big part of the frontier involves really big budgets, and so that's only open to these large companies. 
that may be shifting already. And so, you know, we've seen these uh, distilled models where you, you, you take a pre-trained model and then you can fine tune it and do various things to it uh, at the level of budget that, that a university can easily do. So there's definitely still a role for university work. And if, if you look at uh, who's publishing in the big conferences, the biggest individual contributors are the companies uh, like Google and, and Meta and so on. Uh, but overall, there's certainly more from all the universities than, than there are from the big companies. Um, so, so I think they'll, they'll continue to be a mix. I think one of the, the really interesting things is what are we going to do in terms of a, a, a national capability? And uh, will the government get involved with that, right? So, so the government did get involved with the national uh, supercomputing capability. Will they want to have a national large language model capability that is then can be shared with uh, educational researchers? I don't know. Looks like uh, England is definitely going the way that way. I don't know if the U.S. will or if it makes more sense just to say the big companies are going to be doing this anyways. They've made a big investment. They want to amortize their investment. They'll be providing uh, cloud resources They'll be competing, uh, you know, it gets boring to compete on how many dollars per CPU or per megabyte for your cloud services. They'd rather compete on added on services like large language models. And if they start making good terms for universities to have uh, free or, or reduced rates at that, uh, then maybe we don't need any government role. But I think it's, it's kind of up in the air for now how, how that's all going to play out. Well, I mean, the division of labor between primary research and applied research, I mean, it kind of makes sense that you would have, you know, government funded and universities doing the primary because it's usually not mm-hmm. monetizable through IP. And then the applied stuff, right? The companies do that because they can, you know, monetize it through IP. But still, we do have these companies like, you know, OpenAI that are investing enormous amounts of money and creating things, which, you know, don't seem to have any kind of real solid IP. I mean, can any, anybody can generate mm. one of these? Once the insight becomes public, once we see, oh, okay, you know, that's what you're doing, right? Then, you know, anybody could do this stuff. Most of the general purpose tools that were developed by Google and by Facebook and Yahoo, right? They would generally just open source them, right? And so this has always, I think, been a puzzle mm. to a lot of people, how and why companies will do this, <laughs> invest all this money, and then just say, okay, anybody who wants to yeah. use it can go ahead and borrow the insight and build their own tool, right? Yeah, I, I guess the companies see that the uh, value is in what you do with it mm-hmm. and, the, and the services you provide. You know, one reason to open source is uh, if you have a vibrant open source community, it's hard for one individual company to compete against that. One of the places I worked was Sun Microsystems. They had their own version of Unix, but that really wasn't sustainable. Uh, you know, one company couldn't compete against the entire open source uh, Linux community. And I think companies see that. That'll be the same kind of thing uh, with AI systems, that if you try to be proprietary and go it alone, you'll fall behind the rest of the open source. And so it's much better to participate with the open source and try to compete against it. Right. And I think, you know, echoing what you said earlier, I I often make the point that the algorithms are generally not where you make your money. It's in the data. Do you think that we are headed towards a greater fragmentation of the internet, right? As companies begin to kind of build walls to partition off their data and uh, develop, you know, tools from their proprietary data. I mean, Google's entire business model is built on the idea that you can go and, and scrape the entire web, right? I mean, will we see the rise of, you know, more like walled gardens where you have all this data that's kept in app or in some permissioned location and make it more difficult for us to aggregate all the world's information into one spot? I guess I'm more worried about uh, nation states than companies, mm-hmm. right? So uh, certainly China's view of what the internet is, is, is very different than ours. Uh, Russia's view is, is some, somewhat in between, but, but very different from ours. Uh, 
so I guess I worry more about that. Uh, and I, I see the companies more as saying, well, we're going to have an add-on to, to what was available before. I do think we could do a better job of managing the flow of information and the flow of value derived from that information. So we, uh, we developed the uh, robots.txt protocol 30-something years ago to say, what are you allowed to do with a, with a file that's posted on the web? And I think the, the biggest mistake was uh, not putting a dollar sign mm-hmm. in, into that protocol, right? So if we had said, uh, you know, you can have this, but here's a micropayment that's due for it to read this file that's behind a paywall, or you can take this photo and incorporate it into your computer vision model, but you need to pay me this mm-hmm. tiny fraction of a, of a penny for uh, royalties for it and, and being able to figure out how to, uh, to split that up. Because otherwise, what we have now with, with copyright is just too much of a blunt mm-hmm. instrument. It's like either you infringe or you don't. And in order to prove that, you have to go to court. It's really expensive. Uh, we, we need a way to say, uh, I want to share a small amount of rights for a small amount of return. And I don't want to have any humans get involved in negotiating that. I just want it to happen automatically. So would this mean like a, a TCPIP for, you know, permissions and micropayments, something like that, like a standard? That, yeah, that, yeah, right. We need, we need some way of doing that. Yeah, I always, I mean, a lot of people say, that they want to be paid for their data, right? So they say, hey, you know, Google's monetizing my data. Mm-hmm. Facebook's monetizing my data. And, you know, when I look at the the cost benefit, I think, well, okay, if Google pays you for your data and then you have to pay Google for your searches, you're going to probably wind up paying a lot more than you get paid, right? <laughs> so I think, you know, at the end of the day, you're getting a pretty good deal. I mean, the average American's probably benefiting far more than their cost. And so at the end of the day, it's it's just, it's better to just leave it the way it is. But presumably there are others that have the opposite. They're paying more than they're getting. Yeah. So, I mean, so certainly you can divide these uh, companies' revenues by the the number of users and comes out to, you know, somewhere in the range of $50 per year or something that a, that a customer is worth. And then there have been surveys, like I, I think Eric Bingjorson at, at Stanford did this uh, survey of asking people how much these things are worth to you mm-hmm. and how much is Facebook or Google or so on work. And it comes out to the hundreds or thousands of dollars mm-hmm. per year. People say, this is what I'd like to get out of that. So I agree with you that uh, people are already getting a good deal. You know, maybe it would look better if they got a, a small payment back and, and had to pay for it. But then, you know, people just really like free mm-hmm. and transactions are are difficult to do so so i think we're better off the way the way we are now well if we were to have some kind of payment system i mean right now copyright is so fragmented i mean you have like bmi and ascap and they at least represent the musical world and presumably could negotiate on behalf of the musical world but the rest of the data world is is so highly fragmented I can't even imagine what it would be like yeah. to get all the owners of data into a room to, you know, negotiate some kind of reward system. I mean, even if you could develop the technology yeah. for these micropayments, how would the prices get set? I mean, would you need to design market mechanisms to kind of do price discovery or, you know, would you do something, would you need more like the BMI ASCAP model where you have collectivities that are doing negotiations and, and setting scales? Yeah. I don't know what the right way to do it is. I, I mean, we do have experience running uh, billions of auctions every day uh, on the internet, and, and that gets done automatically, and, and that sets the the market prices. I think the music industry is a good analogy, and and I think that came about because they had their internet first, mm-hmm. right? And that was called radio, where all of a sudden we've gone from uh, music recordings being a physical good to being, uh, well, it wasn't quite digital, it was an analog good, uh, but it was freely available over the the air and they had to figure out some way to pay for it. Uh, And so they did it first. With the internet, unfortunately, we didn't follow that model. Now, I mean, most of the big social media companies and Google is kind of partially a social media company. I guess most of the big tech companies, I mean, we have Mm -hmm. advertising supported business model. And, you know, a lot of people are critical of that because they don't like ads. I don't really understand that because as somebody who's in business, like ads are great. You know, like that's, it's basically information, right? But 
you, you know, some people would argue that that's very limiting. I mean, for me, the big critique of advertising-based business model is that it's just so limiting. I mean, there's only so many ads that can go around. Do you think that that's going to have to change? Do you think that the Googles and the Facebooks of the world are going to have to develop alternative ways of generating mm-hmm. revenue? So you got three possibilities, right? You can be ad-supported, you can pay for each individual good, or you can pay for uh, an aggregate with a subscription. And, you know, the way people consume stuff on the web, the, the paying per individual doesn't seem to work very well. It, there's too much overhead for that because you want to make too many, uh, you want to see too many things. Uh, I think a subscription model is a possibility. And, I, you know, I guess as a society, we still haven't really understood or adapted to how digital works. Uh, and we seem, you know, people are super willing to say, I'm going to spend $50 or even $100 per month uh, for kind of a physical good that I pay to my phone provider or my cable provider. But when it comes to paying a few pennies to read something on the internet, it's, oh no, inter- you know, information wants to be free. And I think we might be better off in, in a world where uh, these assets were all aggregated and you just paid for a subscription. Mm-hmm. I know I have I have trouble managing mine. I got uh, dozens of things that I subscribe to with the New Yorker and New York Times and Atlantic and everything else. And, you know, and it's always, uh, oh, you know, my credit card ran out or it's on the wrong account or I've logged into the wrong thing or I forgot my passport. And it's just a pain. And I would love for all of that pain to go away. Well, it'd be really interesting to see what people's willingness to pay would be for ad supported versus non ad supported. You know, when, when you're looking, when it's, a, when yeah. it's a music service like Spotify, okay, I get it, right. You're going to pay more for ad free because you don't want to have your enjoyment of the music interrupted. But if I'm looking at say, you know, Google and I have a choice between having Google, you know, use my search history or not use my search history to generate results. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would pay more for a Google that gave me good quality paid ads and personalized results that that utilized my history. And same with Facebook. I mean, when Facebook gets it right, like their ads are the best part, right? It's only when they start, you know, just selling ads to anybody and not really thinking about the algorithm that you get a little annoyed and it's noticeable. So it'd be interesting to see if people would actually be willing to pay more to get the ads rather than than pay Mm -hmm. less. Yeah. 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 If if it's done right, uh, then it's a great advantage. The premise of uh, capitalism is that it's an optimizing system as long as everybody has uh, symmetric information and people are rational. I think the problem is uh, they don't have symmetric information and people are not rational. And so you end up buying a bunch of junk that you didn't really want. Mm -hmm. But but if we could figure out ways to protect people and and say, uh, you know, here's stuff that actually would be useful to you, uh, then that's a great valuable service. And and that is is a big advantage to your life. Uh, But if it's pushing junk and sort of taking advantage of your fears and insecurities to make you buy something you didn't need, then that's a disadvantage. And maybe, you know, so one of the things I really like about this future and, you know, some of it coming from the large language models is right now you have to trust a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of different companies. And, you know, on my phone, every time I, I click on an icon, now I've handed over complete control of my device to Uber or Domino's or whoever it was. Uh, but I can imagine a future where I say, you know, there's a, an AI system running on my phone and I'm communicating with that and I trust it because of where it came from and because I've trained it and it knows me. And now it's negotiating on my behalf and it goes out. And it accepts some ads that it thinks are good for me. And it rejects the ones that it thinks are not right for me. And now I only have to trust uh, one entity rather than all of them. And and I feel that might be a better future for us all. So this would be like a cross-platform personal assistant that would kind of, you know, act as your your bodyguard, your attention guard, 
<laughs> your wallet card and, and so forth. Yeah, I like that idea. Now, Berkeley just launched this new division of data science. I'm sure you've been following mm-hmm. this. And so, you know, within the academy, we've seen data-related fields emerge out of statistics departments, out of computer science departments, out of other parts of the university. University divisional architecture is among the stickiest of, I mean, private companies are also sticky, but not uncommon for a private company just to spin up a new division or, you know, spin up a new functional area. Universities are a lot slower Mm -hmm. to do this. It usually requires somebody to donate a billion dollars or so. Do you think that yeah. it makes sense pedagogically and in terms of research interest to carve out a new kind of field of inquiry, a new academic discipline that is sort of separate from, say, computer science, separate from statistics that you know we call data science or, or some other term? So I think it depends entirely on the university. And we've seen very different models, right? So some universities will have one biology department Mm -hmm. and others will have biology and uh, chemical biology and biological chemistry and five other departments. Uh, And, you know, those choices, I think, are not really done for scientific reasons. They're done for political and historical Mm -hmm. reasons of, you know, so-and-so was already here and they didn't... They weren't willing to go in the direction we wanted to, so we needed to start a new thing. Uh, so I think as long as the the content is out there, I don't really care if it's taught through one department name with one name or or another name. And you know, do do whatever works best for you for your situation. Well, I guess a related question is, you know, how widespread should this training? be right. I remember when I, I taught at Duke University, every incoming freshman had to take a course in rhetoric and critical thinking, regardless of what their major was. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, one of the thoughts that we had here at Berkeley was that every single student, whether they were a poetry major or a uh, physics major, would have to get some exposure to the rudiments of data science or quantitative analysis of some kind. I mean, and, and the idea is that this is something which is really a core essential skill you need to survive in the modern world. I mean, is that true? I mean, do you think our poets should be learning a little bit about classifiers and regression and so forth? I think they should learn how to interact with the tools that they use in their daily life. And that doesn't necessarily mean they need to know classification algorithms, but they need to know that... Uh, these systems are fed by data. They have to know that there's privacy issues around the data. They have to know that there's issues of bias and these systems can perpetuate that bias. They have to know that somebody's making a decision of what it is that they're prioritizing. Don't believe the output just because it was uh, presented by a computer, right? I think we some sense we've kind of fetishized uh, computers saying because, you know, we have experience with like uh, calculators and we put in two four digit numbers and multiply them and it always gives the right answer. So therefore every answer coming out of a computer must be right. And we have to train people that that's not so. So it's then more general widespread information about how to interact with information, right? How to interact with, yeah, yeah, yeah. and how to, when to, you know, trust information and when to not trust information. You know, that sort of thing. I would think that, you know, that would be a more important thing to teach in high school than, say, trigonometry, which is what you know, a lot of high school students get. I think so. I think, you know, so trigonometry or calculus. And I think part of the confusion is, you know, there's the content you want to teach, and then there's also uh, ways of thinking. And so I think trigonometry survives not because it's really exciting as a field, you know, and uh, unless you're going to be a surveyor or something, you're probably not going to be using a lot of trigonometry, but that we decided that that's the place we're going to teach the notion of proof mm-hmm. because because it was well-suited for that, that students could come up with, with proofs, they could debug them, they could see what counts as a proof and what doesn't. Uh, and that's uh, a good skill to have. And we just happened to say, we're going to teach that through trigonometry. But I think the, the trigonometry is not the important part. It's the notion of proof that's an important part. And that, and that could be done someplace else. And 
similarly with calculus, right? Say, you know, learning how to do symbolic integrals means you have a half dozen different strategies and you have to look at one problem and figure out which strategy applies and then break it down into pieces and combine those pieces back together. Uh, and that kind of skill is really important. But learning to do it for calculus is not necessary because uh, Wolfram Alpha can solve all of them. And so, you know, solving calculus problems is now the same as, as solving multiplication problems. It can all be done automatically. Uh, and so we still want this idea of analyzing a problem and breaking it up into parts, but it doesn't have to be done with calculus. Well, it seems like we over-index on proof and under-index on inference, right? So, you know, geometry is about mm -hmm. proof, trigonometry is about proof, but where, where do students learn, you know, inference, right? That seems to be the yeah. piece that's under invested in it, particularly at, say, the high school level. And certainly there have been a lot of, uh, of notions to say that uh, our math training should be more focused on statistics and probability. And I think that makes sense because we're living in an uncertain world. Mm -hmm. Now, I have to ask you, you taught this course on what's called a MOOC, and it was one of the earliest versions of a MOOC. And I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of students you were able to reach through this platform. And, you know, there was a lot of excitement around MOOCs and the excitement seemed to have died down, even though I think the number of them has continued to grow. Did we give up on MOOCs too early? I mean, what, what has been your experience, your continued experience when now reflecting on that course that you did with yeah. Sebastian? So we signed up uh, 160,000 people and we got 23,000 of them to finish. Uh, which might seem like a small small ratio if you're thinking about high school dropouts, but it was actually a really good ratio uh, for online classes. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that we've given up on it. I think the hype has subsided, but I think uh, there's a lot of growth, both in the, the massive classes and also in the smaller classes, right? So, you know, all, all your audience out there that's doing uh, corporate training of, uh, you know, various kinds, you're probably doing that, uh, online rather than, uh, you know, more often now than you would do it with a, with an in-person instructor, although there's, there's certainly still some in-person. So I think there's a lot more of that online education and I think it works and I think we're learning to do it better, but I guess, you know, in some ways, Sebastian and I cheated in that this was an exciting course because it was one of the first big ones to be available. And so the students brought their own enthusiasm with them. Mm -hmm. And then we just took advantage of that. And I think that's the main thing I learned is that, you know, going into this, I thought my job is to convey information. And if I do that right, then I'm done and I've succeeded. And I, what I think what I learned from doing the course is that motivation is more important than information. Mm -hmm. Information is secondary, but uh, getting the students excited, getting them to want to learn and to keep going, if you can do that, then you're going to be a success, even if you're a little bit fuzzy on, on presenting the content. And if you don't do it, they're going to drop out and they're not going to get anything out of it. And so I think this softer side of what is it that motivates students? What is it that keeps them engaged? Uh, that's the hard part. And I guess the field isn't progressing maybe as fast as you want it to. And that's because we're asking all these questions of how to do that hard part, how to, how to, how to keep people motivated. The, the easy part of how to present stuff online, how to show a video and how to show a problem and grade it and so on, uh, that we've all solved but how to really reach students and keep them motivated is, is still the challenge. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm surprised that the shift from research into the corporate research offices hasn't been matched by a similar shift in kind of education and training, right? You know, where, where is Google University, right, for instance? Where is Amazon you know, University? They haven't grown quite as, as much as I would have expected. Yeah, so we so we certainly have that in in for lots of different fields. But you're right. Maybe uh, maybe it should have grown more by now. Mm -hmm. Well, last question. You know, a lot of us educators are worried about ChatGPT and how it's impacting education. I mean, I think educators worry every time there's a new technology because it just means they have to redo, rethink how they do what they do. You know, when Excel was invented, 
right? Accounting didn't go away. You know, we just changed how we teach it. I remember when we wouldn't even let students use Excel in their final exams in a finance mm-hmm. class. And now, of course, we do. You know, and you've heard stories about people running their final exams through ChatGPT. We did that actually at Stanford last fall in finance and got a B, yeah. B plus. <laughs> it's pretty good, which is better than some of our students. So, you know, how now that you're spending more and more time at Stanford, how do you think we need to change how we educate and train, given that a student can spin up a, an amazing term paper right, without having to do a whole lot of work? Yeah, yeah so, you, so you certainly have to change and adapt. But as you say, uh, I'm used to that, right? So, so again, going back to the first edition of the textbook, uh, we used to have uh, assignments or problems that were saying, uh, implement this algorithm in a programming right. language. Uh, but you can't give that anymore mm-hmm. because they're all on GitHub. Uh, so instead, you have to say, use this algorithm and apply it to this data and analyze the results. And that's probably a much better thing to be doing anyways. So I think we, you know, we were forced to change because the students could cheat if we didn't, but we ended up in a better place. And I think the same thing will happen with with these types of, of where we are now, but it may be a, a harder change to get there. It's going to take some adaptation as a society to get used to this idea that these models can generate text that looks pretty good. I think of it as the uh, Chauncey Gardner effect uh, from being there. That, uh, you know, Chauncey was a simple gardener, but he wore a really nice suit. And so he was mistaken as somebody who was profound rather than somebody who wasn't. And so when they they put him on TV because he had a good suit and they asked him, what do you think of the economic conditions for growth? And he said, well, in order to grow, we have to uh, water the fields. And they said, oh, oh, very good. You're in favor of the stimulus plan. And put something into his head that wasn't really there. And I think the same thing is happening with these language models. That you know, They're pretty good and they can do a bunch of stuff. But we have this opinion that anything that could uh, have syntax that's uh, so accurate must really understand everything. Uh, and that's just not so. So I think as we get more used to that, we'll understand better where's the place for actually understanding versus just writing down text that looks coherent. And and that means students will have to deal with that, uh, professors will have to deal with that and changing the assignments to, to engage the, the students in, in actually demonstrating understanding rather than just echoing back text. Right, and of course that sounds a lot more labor intensive and you know, it was gonna require it. Yeah, uh, but, but uh, you know, you can always go to your large language model and say, give me 10 examples of uh, problems that I can give to my students. Right. Right? Yeah. Well, I, I love this. I think this sounds like the name of, of, of an article, the, the Chauncey Gardner philosophy of large language models. Peter, thanks so much for joining me. This latest book is called Data Science in Context, and it really is a survey of kind of, well, introductory terms, and then sort of what are the key issues that people are thinking about, particularly in the ethical issues. And there's a whole section on really thinking clearly about the ethics. So thanks so much for joining me. Hope to chat again soon. Thank you, Greg. Great to be here. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.